Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. You guys in the Thanksgiving hangover too? Because first service is just tired. And <laughs> Everyone have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. Yeah? Did you enjoy it? Did you eat a lot of good food? We eat good food all the time, but Thanksgiving, I, I always do the turkey for our family and <clears throat> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it is. Um, thanks, Mom. Um, but is no is, is there anybody here who, um, as you look forward to the holidays, you you actually have more of a dread than a a sense of excitement? Like maybe the holidays are a time where, for some reason, over the years, maybe something happened around a holiday season. And so it's just a reminder of something that went on. Uh, maybe you're facing a holiday season. Um, I know I have friends and me and myself are facing a holiday season in light of something that happened that's made it a little bit different looking forward to the holidays. Um, but, but specifically, if you would say that, you know, every, every year about this time, it seems like there's the, the temptation to be either depressed or down or or anything like that, or to just to go into a funk rather than to be excited. Is there anybody here who identifies with that? That just it seems like, yeah, if, if that's you, go ahead, go ahead, stick your hands up real quick, just keep them up for a second. Yeah, we're not going to make you come up here and do anything weird, that's next week. Because um, <laughs> this week we just, no, listen, keep your hands up for a second, because I want people to just put their hands on you and pray for you and encourage you, because here's the thing, there is not a season that God has called you into of depression, there is never a time of year that God's called you into where that's just the way it is or it just happens every year this time. Or, and sometimes, you guys, if we're not careful, listen, we'll adopt a mindset based on our experience that even okays that stuff. Where we actually give it permission because, well, this happens to me every year. And so my experience causes me to believe that and because I believe that I accept it and so my experience matches up with my belief and pretty soon I have a self-fulfilling prophecy in my life where every year I expect it every year it comes and every year my expectations are met and reinforce my expectation for the next year we can have that happen and live so far below where Jesus wants us to live he never called you to a season of depression ever I promise you So Father, we just thank You right now that this year, this will be different, God. That if we see a pattern of depression or a pattern of being down or a pattern of anxiety coming that's come so many years before, God, that we would see it for what it is and we would take authority over it and say, Jesus, You didn't call me to depression. That You said that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. That You called us to be above and not beneath. The head and not the tail. God, that we would be blessed as we come and as we go. God, in the city and in the field. That there's no place that You've called us to where depression is okay or allowed in Your kingdom. And so God, I just ask right now that You would give us a new way of thinking. That we would actually change the way that we think as we think about the holiday season. That we wouldn't look forward to it with dread or anxiety, God, but that we would expect to see Your goodness. God, even during this season, and maybe especially during this season, we would expect to see Your goodness. We would expect to see You, Father. I just ask right now that that lie would be broke in Jesus' name. That there would be no occasion given to the enemy. That we wouldn't give Him a month or a season or even a day of our lives, God. That every day would be the day that You've made and we'll rejoice and be glad in it. We thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. You guys realize that's how strongholds start, right? A stronghold, like, like if you want to make something strong, you reinforce it. So you want to make a concrete wall strong, you put reinforcement in it, rebar in it. Why? Reinforcing bar. Why? Because you strengthen it by reinforcing it. And I promise you, a stronghold in your life happens when you have an expectation and then you reinforce that by what you experience. And your experience then begins to tell you, this is just the way it is. And so now all of a sudden, we have a a thing that we've allowed and accepted into our life that Jesus has no intention of us living in. He has never called you to a season of depression. He has never called you to a season of being down. He's never called you to discard entire periods of a year and just saying, well, every year about this time, blah, 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 fill in the blank with whatever it is. It's a lie. He's never called you to that. That doesn't mean that hasn't happened. It just means it's not His desire for your life. That's how we do spiritual warfare, is we take authority and we cast down things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So as we know Him, we can take authority over things that we know are not from Him. And if I can't find a season of my life in the Bible, if I can't find Jesus going through a season of depression, then I shouldn't allow myself to be susceptible to a season of depression. I should never accept things into my life. In fact, what I should do is take the knowledge that I have of God. Which is what? That this is the day the Lord's made. This day. He he didn't say like, well, this is the day that the Lord made and I will be depressed and down in it. No, listen, I'm not making fun of depression. I'm saying it's a lie. And it's settling. And what happens is, is we have these things sometimes that become patterns of behavior. And they become these self-fulfilling prophecies because every year I expect that this time of year this happens and every year my expectations are met and every year my expectations are reinforced so that I expect it even more the next year. And pretty soon I have a habit and a pattern in my life that I've allowed and it's less than Jesus died on a cross for me to live in. And it's not because the enemy is making it happen. It's because I've allowed that pattern of thinking in. I haven't renewed my mind and I, my life hasn't been transformed as a result of it. That's a lot of the Christian life. That's what spiritual warfare is. We take authority, casting down everything, uh, lofty things, imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's why we have to have a knowledge of God, who He is and what He's like and what He desires for our life. Because if we don't have that knowledge, how in the world do we know when something has come against who He is or what He said? How do we take authority over something that we think may be from Him? You think about it. Like, how in the world can you ever take authority over something if you believe it might be the work of the Father? That's why you be careful that just because something's going on in your life that you don't say, well, this is what God wants. The disciples could have done that in the boat with Jesus. They could have said, well, this is what He wants. They at least had enough knowledge of what He wanted for their life to go and wake Him up. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, a little bit more. But listen, last week we talked about being transformed by renewing your mind. That means you actually have to come to this place where you start to realize, maybe the way that I think is not the way God thinks. Maybe I've been taught by so many things that aren't Him. Maybe I've been taught by the world, by experiences, by people that meant well, by life, by all these different things. But maybe it's not God that's taught me these things. And maybe I've developed a pattern of thinking that's incongruent with what I find in Scripture. And at some point, we owe it to ourselves to start to examine the way that we think and what we believe and make sure that we can find it in the life of Jesus because the Bible says that He is our example in all things. 
So if he's my example, then that means if I can't find it in his life and find him tolerating in his life, I probably shouldn't accept it in mine. And, and, and sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, we'll have this catch-all phrase, and I talked about this a little bit in the first service, but <clears throat> we sometimes have this catch-all phrase that we use, and anytime something happens that we don't understand, especially when it's something that looks like it's not something that would be from God or something that lines up with the life of Jesus, we throw out this blanket statement. You guys have all heard this before. You've heard it preached at funerals. Well, you know, His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we use that as almost a, a, a catch-all statement that means, I don't understand this and this doesn't seem right, but, and then we say that phrase as if God was saying in that statement in Isaiah, look it, you'll never understand me. So don't even try. That's not what God was saying through Isaiah in that, in that verse. We have to take the whole counsel of Scripture, but most importantly, we have to take things in context. And make sure that we're not abusing verses just so that we have a little temporary peace because we take a verse out of context, we apply it like a band-aid. The problem is, is that doesn't fix anything. And if we take it out of context, we can actually get into a lot of trouble. Open your Bibles up. I'm going to talk from here a little bit. I didn't in the first service, but I'm going to this service um, and it's something we, we've mentioned before, but, uh, but I think for some reason it feels really strong on me to talk about this today a little bit. Now this is the prophet Isaiah. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says this, starting in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can we just talk for a second about the fact that this begins with an invitation and a demand of, of somebody to abandon something? before he starts talking about how his ways are higher and his thoughts are better. He's not saying, let the, fool, let the wicked man abandon his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts because my thoughts and ways are so much better. And we've taken that verse so far out of context and we've taken it to mean this. Yours are bad. Mine are better. Get rid of yours. You can't have mine. No, I just wanted you to know that yours are bad and you should get rid of them and mine are good, but you can't have mine. That's, that would, that's foolish. That would be like if we went to the beach together and you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you dropped it in the sand like kids do and it got full of sand and I walked up to you and I said, hey, you should probably throw that sandwich away. I've got sandwiches that are way better. And you said, oh, okay. Yeah, my sandwiches are so much better than your sandwiches. Go throw that thing away. Get rid of that. Abandon that sandwich. Oh, okay. And you walk over to the trash can. You throw your sandwich in the trash can. You come walking up to me and you say, all right, I, I threw that one away. Could I? Oh, you thought I was going to give you a sandwich? No. You can't have my sandwiches. I just wanted you to know that yours are bad and mine are better. But why? I mean, I don't even know. Like, that makes no sense at all. It would be so foolish. If someone ever did that, really. but this is what we do with this verse. He says, let the foolish man abandon his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts because my thoughts and my ways are so much better and so much higher than yours. What's he saying? Stop 
thinking the way of an unrighteous and a wicked person and start thinking the way that I do because your thoughts lead to death. Because your thoughts are full of wickedness and unrighteousness, so you should abandon them because mine are so much better, mine are so much higher. It has to be an offer of an exchange because we are then told in the New Testament, he says that we, but who can understand the, the ways of the Lord? But we have the mind of Christ. How many wicked and unrighteous thoughts do you think there are in the mind of Christ? Come on, we, we can't use this verse as a feel-good when something happens that we don't understand. Now that's not to say that there won't be things that happen that we don't understand. I have questions. I have some things that right now I'm like, God, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. But what I can't do is say, and I'll never know and I'll never understand and you can never be figured out and you can never be understood because you said that your thoughts are better, higher than my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. That's not what he's saying. He said, abandon yours because mine are better. What is the implication here? If you get rid of yours and you make room, I'll give you mine and mine are better. It's an offering of an exchange, not a, a, a heavenly taunt. It's not God in heaven saying, yours are bad, mine are better. For the sake of taunting you and letting you know that what you have stinks and that what He has is so much better, but there's no chance that if you give up yours, I would ever give you mine. It's the idea that the way that we think a lot of times has to be abandoned so that we can begin to think the way that He thinks. That the way that we live often has to be abandoned so that we can live the way that He's called us to live. That there has to be this exchange because one time you were born into sin, into the first Adam, you have to relearn how to live being born again into the second Adam, into Christ. It just has to happen. There's no way around it. And that's why we have to make sure that we at least at some point in our life come to a place where we start to examine and we start to question, God, why do I think this way? Why do I think this way? When something happens in my life and something flares up inside of me, rather than just suppressing it, painting a grin on my face, I have to ask myself, God, why does that bother me? If I'm not alive for me, and you called me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you, and you didn't flare up when people rejected you. In fact, you washed the feet of the man that you knew was going to betray you. You got on your knees and humbled yourself and washed the feet of Judas, who the Bible is really careful to let us know Satan had already entered into. Meaning what? He already had opened himself up and given the enemy a place in his life to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows this because he knows who's going to betray him. Yet Jesus gets on his knees and washes his feet along with the rest of the disciples. And if that's how you responded to someone, Jesus, that you knew was going to hand you over to be killed, why do I have a hard time humbling myself and kneeling before someone who calls me a name? Come on, because he's our example in all things. If we aren't honest with ourselves, we will never live the life that we're called to live. There's so much peace. There's so much freedom. But it's not always easy. 
It's not always easy. I promise you the temptation was there for Jesus to look at Judas and go, are you kidding me? You, you, you've had the, the audacity to stick your feet out knowing what you're going to do? Because think about it. At some point, Judas had to see that Jesus was coming for him. He had to notice, well, he washed Matthews, he washed Mark's, he washed Luke's, he washed Timothy, he washed, or, I'm sorry, Thomas. He's washed all their feet. He's washing Peter's now. Mine are next. And at some point, Judas had to actually extend his feet out and let Jesus wash them. And if you think the enemy wasn't whispering in Jesus' ear, look at him. How dare he put his feet out for you to wash him with what he has planned. Jesus never once looked at him and said, you think I'm washing your feet with what you have planned? We'll give ourselves permission, though, if we're not careful, if we don't actually exchange the way that we think and the way that we live for the way that He thinks and the way that He lives. We'll give ourselves permission when people do far less to treat them far worse. Come on. We'll give ourselves rights at the expense of righteousness. You can only have one. You get to choose which, but you can only have one. You can lay down your rights and receive His righteousness, or you can hold on to His right, your rights and live at the expense of other people, but you can't do both. That's why He said, if anyone would come after Me, He must first deny Himself. Why? Because if life's about Me, I'm not washing Judas' feet. If life's about Me, I'm probably not washing any of their feet because Peter's going to abandon Me and deny that He even knew Me. We make Thomas out to be so bad. Listen, we, we make Thomas out to be so bad because he said, I won't believe it unless I can touch and see. Come on, we've said far worse than that. We've allowed attitudes in our lives towards things that we've heard about God. We, I promise you, I have. Maybe not you guys, but me and the podcasters have heard of things that people have done in the name of Jesus and thought to ourselves, I wouldn't believe it unless I saw it or unless I was actually there. And we allow ourselves to become judgmental and critical because it's beyond our ability to to understand it or our ability to believe it or beyond what we've experienced ourselves. And so rather than humbling ourselves and learning, we put ourselves in the seat of the judge and say, I'll only believe it if I actually can see it. Just be careful. But also be careful that you don't start to call someone doubting Thomas because they for one instance had a little bit of doubt about something that was relayed to them by somebody. Because there was another time when Jesus said that He was going to go to Nazareth. And they said, if you go to Nazareth, you're going to be killed. Or Jerusalem. He said, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be killed. And Thomas says, well then let's go and die with Him. Why don't we call Him faithful Thomas? Why don't we call Him courageous Thomas? Because He was the only one of the disciples who said, well if He's going, then let's go and die with Him. Why? Because we like to label people by their worst moment because it makes us feel better about ours. Come on. If we're, not, if we're in this thing for ourselves, we'll find any reason. That's why he's called, the Bible never calls him Doubting Thomas. That was added there by a man. The Holy Spirit never said, subtitle this, Doubting Thomas. You've come to know him as Doubting Thomas because the story that you've heard about Thomas is the one about him not believing. But you probably haven't heard too many times the story of Thomas saying, well, if he's going to go die, then come on, guys, let's go die with him. 
Why? Because we'd way rather talk about his failing than the time when he actually got it right because when we talk about his failing, we feel better about ours. And then we can call him Doubting Thomas and it makes us feel better about the fact that maybe sometimes we've had doubt too and hey, even Thomas did. Don't forget that before that, Thomas was ready to go die with him and would have gone to the Jerusalem and died with him. Maybe we should call him Faithful Thomas. Maybe he should be known as Courageous Thomas. I know. When I saw that the first time, I was like, whoa. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wait a minute. Is this the... the it is. It's the same Thomas. Why have I never heard this before? Why is it that by the time I'm eight, I knew all about his doubt? But it took me until I was 38 to learn about his courage. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be a doubting Thomas. We sing songs about him. That's not to excuse his doubt, but it's to say, come on, God doesn't judge you by your worst moment. Why do we label him by his? Why do we give ourselves that right even? Why do we ever take the liberty to label anybody in a way that God never does? Why? It's because life's still about me. And there's something that I gain by seeing somebody else miss it. There's something in me that feels better when there's somebody else that's not doing it. If I can look at Thomas and point at him, then it's okay and I don't have to look at me and point at me. But here's the truth. Even if Thomas was horrible, Thomas isn't my standard, Jesus is. So maybe it doesn't matter if he's doubting or courageous, Thomas, because we were never called to follow Thomas. We were called to follow Jesus. This gospel steps on my toes, but it's beautiful. Because I promise you, when we give ourselves to it, there's so much freedom in it. There's so much freedom in not being alive for myself. There's so much freedom in not being judgmental. Listen, God didn't give you the gift of discernment for you to become critical. I promise you. Discernment loves, or critical loves to, discern, to, to masquerade around as discernment. Well, I'm just discerning. But if you really discern something's wrong, then it's probably so that God showed you that so that you could actually do something about it, not to make sure that everybody else knows what you've discerned. Because if you haven't gone to the person, you're not even supposed to talk to two or three, never mind Facebook. Hmm? Uh, should I stop? I don't have Facebook so I can say that stuff. (laughs) Sometimes it's easier just to cut it off. Sometimes it's easier just to not have it. That way you don't have to worry about the misuse. So I'm not saying that that's the answer for everybody, but I am saying it's the answer for some people, at least for a time. If something becomes such an issue in your life, maybe you should just deal with it. Let it get put away. Cut it off. Let God deal with your heart before you actually try to fix that. Like, if, if you have a snake bite, you wrap a tourniquet around to keep it from spreading into your body. That's not the ultimate solution to having a snake bite, but it sure keeps it from spreading to the rest of your body and causing more problems. I'm saying sometimes it's better to cut it off and isolate it for a while while you're figuring out what the problem is and how to fix the problem than it is to let it continue to flow and spread to the rest of you. Whatever that is. Because sometimes it's not just Facebook. Just think about that for a second. 
Think about the way God set that up. If you see someone doing something they shouldn't be doing, you see someone that's living in a way that's not right. Now, that doesn't mean you see someone make a mistake. It's, the Bible is never talking about a momentary mistake. It's talking about a pattern of behavior. Someone, when it talks about a brother who's living in sin, who's given themselves to something, it means it's someone who's made a pattern and a habit of living in a certain way that's incongruent with the gospel. In, in one place, it even says if you see someone committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, just to pray for them, but if you see them committing a sin that leads to death, what does that mean? It means you need to ask the Holy Spirit, is this something that you're dealing with them on that I need to pray for them? Is this something that they don't even know and they're actually heading towards death and I need to go talk to them about? And consider that maybe it's one of the two. But if it's something the Holy Spirit tells you needs to be dealt with and that He wants to use you to deal with it, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go and talk to the person. Humbly and gently with a spirit of humility and gentleness. So if I can't be humble and gentle in it, I probably don't need to talk to the person about it because I might do more damage than I do good. And if I can't be humble and gentle, then maybe I need to ask God if you showed me that to point out the lack of humility and gentility in me and you're actually trying to deal with my heart as much as you want to deal with theirs. Ah, it just steps on toes, I'm telling you. But listen, how freeing is that to know? Look, if I can't go to them humbly and gently, then I'm not supposed to go to them right now, but I should seek the Lord and ask Him to humble me and give me a gentle spirit so that the next time I see someone like that, I can be the one He uses to, to go and speak to them. Not because I have a need to set someone straight, but because I have a love for them. So I have to humble myself. If I can't be humble in it, what am I doing? But the first thing I have to do is go to that person. Then if they won't listen, then I have to get two or three other people that love them and care about them that also can go to them with humility and gentility. That looks a whole lot different than five people standing around in a room casting insults and talking about somebody and calling that going to two or three. That looks like seeking out people that you know love them more than they love their own life and that would lay their life down to see that person okay. And then you guys go to them together. We miss that step a lot of times. We go straight to letting everybody know. Why? Because we have a need to point out error in other people because we're so aware of the error in our own lives. And it makes us feel better to point out what someone's doing wrong and we'll call it discernment and actually it's critical and there's no humility behind it and God hates it because He's actually opposed to the proud. Look, he's, this stuff, I'm, not, I'm preaching this because He's been speaking to me about this. I was talking to someone during the week and we were talking about an issue of pride. I said, you know, in that area of your life right now, God is actually opposed to you. We sing, for you are for us, you are not against us. No, if you're walking in pride, He's actually against you because He opposes the prideful. In that area of your life where you're walking in pride, He's opposing you. And you can be casting the devil out all you want and rebuking and claiming and saying Scripture and all these things as much as you want to. If it's coming from a place of pride, it's not the enemy. It's the Lord that's opposing you. I love when he starts showing me stuff like that, though. You know why? Because on the other side of that, there's always a greater level of intimacy, a greater level of trust, and more of him. And anytime he's trying to show you something, it's not to show you how bad you are. It's to show you what you should not be giving yourself to because there's something greater you could be giving yourself yeah. to. It's, it's never to harm you. 
It's never to make you feel bad about yourself. It's to expose to you, wow, I'm settling for less than his best for my life. That's why we have to know him and actually trust him. Because if I know him and trust him when he shows me something, it may be hard to give it up in the moment. It may feel hard in the moment, but it actually makes it easy because I understand on the other side of this, there's something better because he's never called me to give something up without having something greater. Listen, he didn't take the old covenant without sending a new and better covenant. Why? Because he's never intended for something to be made obsolete without something greater taking its place. Ever. It's never been his heart. It's never been his plan. And it still isn't. Alright, I, I, I feel like I have to say something nice or people are going to leave here thinking I'm angry and hate them. <laughs> I promise you I don't. I promise you it comes from a place of love. And listen, I can only preach the things that he's dealing with me about or has dealt with me about because other than that, I'm just talking out of something that's a good idea with no experience behind it. And we have enough people that go around talking without actually experiencing. Look, experience doesn't mean something weird all the time. How The, uh, the disciples lived with... he was. His presence doesn't have to look spooky and weird. It doesn't have to look even supernatural. How many times the disciples, they were in His presence constantly. How many times did they fall over? I'm not saying it's wrong to fall over. I'm saying that wasn't the norm and saying, wow, His presence must be here because people are falling over. The people that knew Him didn't fall over in His presence very often. In fact, it was the Roman soldiers at the tomb that didn't know him that were the first ones you can read about in the New Testament that fell over because of the glory of God and the presence of the Lord. And I'm not saying falling over is bad, but I'm saying make sure that's not the way that we measure his presence because we can't find that in the life of the disciples who had his very physical presence with them constantly. See, it just steps on my toes, but there's truth in it. There's love in that, and that sets me free from seeking something other than him. And if he wants to come and knock me down, listen, there's been times where I laid, I, one morning I laid in my bed recently and I couldn't do anything but lay there overwhelmed with the fact that he was right there. And it was amazing. And I didn't want anyone else to wake up because I didn't want anyone to talk to me or say anything that would ruin the intimacy I was having with him in that moment. I just laid there enjoying it. I looked at my clock just for a second to see what time it was so that I knew, okay, it's four o'clock. Oh, I have at least two and a half hours of this. Why? Because I just was so loving and valuing what was going on in that moment. I woke up just with an awareness of Him and a communion with Him and this idea that He's right here and I could feel His pleasure. And that was amazing. But if I make that the the gauge for whether He's with me, I haven't been with Him since that morning because I haven't felt that since. But guess what? He said He'd never leave me. He'd never forsake me. So I trust His Word over my feelings. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I want to experience you that way, but there is something wrong with saying, I haven't experienced him since that way. Come on, I'm telling, listen, if you can't find it in Jesus' life and in the life of the disciples, make sure it doesn't become something that's more important than the things you can. All right. I needed it. We all need it. You know why? Because you'll be tempted to think that if there's something happening or you see something happening in someone's life, listen, it's awesome to value what God's doing in someone's life, but not at the, lack of de- at the expense of devaluing what He's doing in your life. And what He's doing in theirs may look different than what He's doing in yours. And that's okay. As long as we're all seeking Him and becoming more like Him. 
You may be in a season of your life where right now things are just happening, you know? Like when I, when I first got born again and going after the gospel, I was learning all these things for the first time. You couldn't, like, I just was like, wow, you know, about all this stuff. I don't have the same feeling sometimes for some of those things because I've experienced it for so long. It doesn't mean I love them or I'm less excited about them. It just means that that zeal sometimes isn't as apparent in my life as it is in someone who's learning it for the first time. It's like the first time you went on a roller coaster. Second time, by the fifth time, you know what's coming and you expect it and you still love it and you still want to go on it, but it's hard to replicate that first time. It's okay. Pray for and encourage him. Be around the one that is going after him and seeking him and while you're going after and seeking yourself and spur each other on and, 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 and stir each other up in love and good works, but never devalue your own experience because it doesn't look like somebody else's. I promise you, Luke's life and Peter's life look different. One was a doctor, one was a fisherman. You can see it in the way that they wrote. Mark was different than Luke. Luke was different than John. What, you know what they didn't have? John laid his head on Jesus' chest. How bad would it have been if they all got offended and left the table because John got to put his head on Jesus' chest? Maybe they had the maturity enough to know, you know, right now, John's just having an intimate time with Jesus, and that's awesome. And I'll have an intimate time with Jesus too. And I'm not mad at John for, not, for having that. And I'm not mad at me for not having that. I just enjoy the fact that people are coming to know him more. Or we could go over there and kick John out and put our head on his chest. <laughs> you know what? If anybody else would have came over and put their head on Jesus' chest, I don't think Jesus would have told them no. But I also don't think that they had to sit around and ridicule John because he was experiencing something they weren't or ridicule themselves because they weren't experiencing something he was. This is another thing I want to just say. I was talking to someone recently and they, they got blessed with something and they said, you know, I just know that there's others that have a need greater than ours. And so I just felt kind of like it was kind of embarrassing or whatever the thing is. Do you know that the Bible doesn't say that God's eyes are roaming to and fro the earth looking for whose situation is the most desperate? It says he's looking for those whose hearts are fully his. That he can show himself strong in. He doesn't say, I'm roaming the earth looking for the person in the most desperate situation. Maybe if the person in the most desperate situation's heart was fully committed to him, they'd have a double whammy and God would really come. But guess what? It doesn't say that. He says he's roam, his eyes rode to and fro the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fixed on him, are fully his, that he may entrust himself to and show himself strong. Your blessing isn't because you had the greatest need. Your blessing is because your heart belongs to him and he's a good dad and loves to bless his people. Otherwise, there's always someone that needs it more. And every one of us would have to feel guilty because every one of us could find somebody that's in a worse position than we are. That's why he didn't say that. He doesn't want you to feel guilt when he gives because it says he gives without reproach. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely to all men. But when you ask, you must believe that you have what you're asking for. You know, otherwise, you're tossed to and fro and all that stuff. But then he says, God who gives liberally without reproach. That means when God blesses you, there's not a reproach of his coming along to make you feel guilty and let you know there's someone else who deserved it more than you did. He just wants to bless you. The reproach comes from the enemy because he wants to devalue what God did in your life. Why? Because he's out to kill, steal, and destroy. And if he can steal your joy, he can kill the blessing that God put into your life. I may get to my message. I may not. Keep going. Um, what time is it? Oh, yeah, no, no, no chance. 
You guys have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> and then you'll be the podcasters that I talked about in the first lesson. Um, no, so I, I actually can tie it into that. Go to Psalm 103, um, I was going to say 103.7. <laughs> you know why? Because right now I listen to 98.9. <laughs> Because it's the most wonderful time of the year, and they start playing Christmas music. So Magic 98.9 goes on. And listen, let me just tell you right now. If you listen to music that was recorded after 1970 at Christmas time, something's wrong with you. If your name ain't Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby... Or Burl Ives or Mel Torme? Stop. Michael Buble? No. No. Justin Bieber. Listen. I can't believe you felt the need to bring that name up. That means you know that he sings Christmas music. How do you know? I didn't even know he did. Don't willingly allow things into your mind you're going to have to one day actually use the Word of God to get transformed from. (laughs) Justin Bieber. Goodness gracious. Psalms 103.7. This is talking about Moses. talking about God. And it says, "He He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. You do a quick study on that in the original language. It shows that he made known to Moses a direct, which means a road or a path of life. But to Israel, he, he, made, he uh, revealed an alilah, which means an exploit. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, M- Moses had relationship with him, and so Moses actually didn't just know God for what he did. He knew God because he knew God's desire. He knew the path of life that God had for him. And we can say, well, yeah, that's because God chose Moses. No, God chose all of the children of Israel because he told Moses, I want you to bring all the children up onto the mountain and I will address them. But they chose to stay behind. What is that saying? They were content to know what God could do, but one man had to know who God was. And the one who knew who God was was the one who God showed the path to. The rest of them had to know him through his exploits. And there's the danger in that. The disciples even fell into this, where they began to know God because of what He did, but they never actually saw sometimes His heart. And they never saw what He was trying to reveal through those things. And they found themselves in situations sometimes where he, they should have known because of what He had done, but instead all they did was let themselves walk away with a cool story rather than a revelation of what God is like. You find it in, in Mark chapter 4, um, verse 35, it says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. What did he say to them? Let us. So that means you guys and me, y'all, us. Let us cross over to the other side. So they got in a boat. Why did they get in the boat? But why did they get in the boat? Because they had a word from him. Because he said to You know, the only reason to get in that boat at that point was because he said to. So they're in the boat because he said, let let us go over to the other side. So they get in a boat and they start going. And it says, and there's other boats with them. That means, you know, people saw that Jesus was going. They got in their boats and they wanted to go. Listen, a lot of people will want to follow you when you're following Jesus, when you leave the shore and everything's calm. When they've just been fed by him or just saw him 
do something supernatural. Just so, There's a lot of people who are all about following you as you follow Christ when they're getting fed and they're sick or being healed and all these good things are going on. That's not proof of anything other than what? His goodness is drawing them. Don't let it be anything other than that. Don't ever let yourself think, wow, this is pretty cool. I've got something really going on. Because that's the plot of the enemy. He wants to come in and allow you to become prideful because God's using you rather than you staying humble and realizing God's using me. He's flowing through me. I'm a vessel. He's the one. And so they get in the boat. They start to go. And it says this. It says, Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat, again, beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? When did Jesus say, let's go to the middle of the pond and die? When did he say, let's go to the middle of the, of the, of the sea and freak out? He didn't. He said, let's go to the other side. But because all they could see of him was his acts, rather than everything he did being a revelation of his nature, it's the same thing he did with the children of Israel. He brings them to an ocean. They've got the army of Pharaoh behind them, a desert around them, and an ocean in front of them. They are in a helpless situation. The first thing they find themselves in Following Him is a helpless situation in which God either has to show up and do something or they are killed. Don't be surprised if when God calls you out into something, the first place you find yourself is facing something that you can't actually do on your own. Because a lot of times He wants to establish right from the beginning, I called you to this. If you trust Me, I'll get you through this. And they could have freaked out and they could have looked at Moses and I'm sure some of them did. And said, why have you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? We would have been better off if we had stayed. That temptation will be there. When God calls you into something and you come to that first Red Sea that you can't cross on your own and you're in a desert. What does a desert lack? Trees. Things to hide behind. Things to make boats out of. You're in a dry, arid, plain, sand dune desert. You can't make a way for yourself. And maybe He brought you to a place where you can't make a way for yourself intentionally because He wants you to learn to trust Him to make a way where He's called you. And so they're standing on the edge of this thing and all God wants to do is what? Show them who He is. It's always His desire. Think about it. He just wants to show them this one thing. I am the one who will protect you. Moses says, how, how, how can I even lead them? Who, who will I say even? How can I, you know, he's trying to figure out how he's going to convince Pharaoh. He says, Moses, I'll go with you. That's enough. Moses doesn't understand it. But eventually Moses learns to know him because he actually has a relationship with him and he gets to know him to a point where he goes to God and says, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Moses, who didn't want to go when God told him the first time, now gets to a place where he's telling God, I'll go, but I'm not going unless you come with me. Why? He's learned you're enough. Not only are you enough, you're all there is. So he, he brings them to the edge of this, this sea. They've got the enemy behind them, chasing them. They've got desert around them, 
and they've got an ocean in front of them, and everything looks helpless but God. What's he wanting to do? All he's wanting to do is this. He wants to establish in their minds once and for all, if you will trust me, I'll make a way. I didn't call you out of the desert. My, I never said I'm going to send you to a desert to be killed by the Egyptians. So why would you freak out when you see the Egyptians coming? I never said I'm going to bring you to an ocean to drown you. So why would you freak out when you see an ocean in front of you? I never said I'm going to leave you in a desert to abandon you, so why would you freak out when all you see around you is desert? I said I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. So what you should do is trust me that it doesn't end here. Because you haven't entered into the promised land, then it probably hasn't come to the end. It's the first thing he does with them. Why? He just wants to establish in them the same thing he wants to establish in us. Would you just trust me even when you don't see how? You know the story, parts the water, they go through, collapses on the Egyptians, and you would think that would have been enough. You would have thought that everything the disciples saw Jesus do up to that point would have been enough, that if he said, let's go to the other side when they came to a storm, rather than freaking out and accusing him of not caring, they would have understood. He didn't call us to the middle of the lake to die, so there must be something that we can't see. And maybe, just maybe, had they trusted him and let what he revealed about himself change the way they think rather than just become a story that they told, they would have went and laid next to him on the pillow and went to sleep. Why? Because they would have understood. He didn't call us here to die. He said, let's go to the other side. And if he's not worried about it, I shouldn't be either. How much concern did Jesus have for the storm? Zero. You know the reason they were afraid? They had two thoughts. He doesn't know and he doesn't care. The only way you can ever feel like you're helpless and feel like God doesn't care, or, or I'm sorry, the only way that you can ever feel helpless is if you get to a place where you feel like God doesn't know and God doesn't care. Because they go to him and say, wake him up. What's that saying? He's only sleeping because he doesn't know there's a storm. If we wake him up, He'll see what I see. And then, don't you care that we're dying? What are they saying? He doesn't care about us. They're making an accusation against the one who was there to give his life for them. The one who healed the sick and fed the hungry and did all these things. Cast out demons. All the things that Jesus did and yet they make this accusation against him. You don't care about us. Because you called us into this boat and now, things aren't going so well. The Egyptians chasing the Israelites. The Israelites could have said to God, you obviously don't care. You called us out of Egypt, and now things aren't going so well. If things going so well are my barometer for His caring or for me doing what He's called me to do, I'll be lost so fast because all the enemy has to do is make something come against me, and I'll turn against the one who called me. Now, don't, don't be Jonah and get on a boat out of disobedience. And then think that you can just go down and sleep in the storm. That might get you tossed into the ocean. Because you realize that Jonah went down and slept. Just like Jesus slept. The difference is Jesus was the answer to the storm. Jonah was the cause of the storm.
That's why Jonah couldn't take authority over the storm and rebuke it because he didn't have the authority to because it was coming from God because of his disobedience. So which storm do you have authority over? The one that's not from the Father. How do you know? Obedience. Think about it. When they, when they go to him and they wake him up, does Jesus say to them, you guys, I'm so glad that you're learning to turn to me when you have a problem? We sometimes think the evidence of faith is the fact that we turn to Him when we're in a storm and Jesus looks at them and says, why do you still have no faith? Come on, that's His answer to them. He said to them, why are you so fearful? For one thing, He doesn't understand why they're afraid. That's not like a a derogatory question from Jesus. That's not Jesus going, why are you so fearful? Don't read it that way. He genuinely is wondering, Why are you guys so fearful? Why? Because he knows the word he gave them. And it wasn't, let's go to the middle of the lake and die. It was, let's go to the other side. So nothing's changed on his end. Why would something change on theirs? He says, why are you so fearful? And then he looks at them and says, how is it that you have no faith? We'd be tempted to think the evidence of our faith is the fact that we're freaking out and waking up Jesus because we trust Him in this situation. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with freaking out and going and praying to Jesus sometimes. But I promise you, it's not always evidence of faith. In fact, sometimes when you're doing that, you're showing that you don't actually believe the word that you had from Him because if you did, you wouldn't be freaking out and waking Him up and acting like He didn't know about the storm before He told you to get in the boat. Because that came from His mouth. That's not like my theology to like make us feel better and dis- or feel bad and scold us. Let's, let's, let's assume that there is a chance that there are times when we would go to Jesus and he would respond the same way to the, us that he did to the disciples. Let's assume if we asked him sometimes, why couldn't we, that he might say, because of the littleness of your faith. Let's assume that sometimes when we wake him up, he may do what it is that we need him to do, but he's not always going to be thrilled about it. In fact, he may look at us sometimes and say, so why were you afraid and how come you don't have faith? In other words, what? If you guys had faith and you trusted me, you wouldn't be waking me up. Maybe you'd sleep next to me. Wouldn't that have been something? If they would have kept sending people and people would have walked down and saw that Jesus was sleeping and realized He's not concerned about this. This was His idea, so I'm not going to concern myself with this because if it was His idea and He's not worried, I'm not going to be worried about it as if I have information that He doesn't or I have information that if He knew, He'd be awake. Come on, because sometimes our prayers sound that way. They sound like we're informing God about something that if he knew about, then he would really be concerned about. God, I, look, you, you aren't really saying anything and you're sleeping. Uh, the only answer I can think of is, is you need to be woken up so that you can see what I see so that you can freak out like I'm freaking out. And the reason he's sleeping is because he's not concerned about the storm. Why? Because the storm wasn't from his father. What do you mean? Well, Jesus couldn't rebuke something that the Father did because He came to destroy the work of the enemy, not the work of the Father. Come on. Jonah couldn't take authority over the storm because his disobedience caused it. Jesus took authority over it because His obedience actually caused them to be where it was. How do you know which one you're in? Are you being obedient? Because if you're in a storm right now, I promise you, you could go to sleep if you want to like Jonah did, but you'll get woke up. 
if you're walking in disobedience. But if you're walking in obedience, maybe God's asking you to come instead of freaking out and having fear and, and asking you, would you just have faith enough to come and join me and not be concerned about this? Because I said, let's go to the other side. I still mean, let's go to the other side. And the storm doesn't change my opinion. The storm doesn't change my mind. Why would it change yours? Wouldn't that have been something if they'd have been like, all right, Peter, go get Jesus. Peter comes down, sees Jesus, and has the revelation. This isn't a problem. If it was a problem, he'd be awake. Jesus was never asleep when he was supposed to be awake. Ever. He told the disciples, why do you slumber? Could you not pray with me? They went asleep when they were supposed to be awake, but Jesus was never sleeping when he was supposed to be awake. He was always doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing when he was supposed to be doing it. So if he was sleeping, it's because he didn't need to be awake. What if they would have had that revelation and they would have came down there and Peter comes down and goes to poke Jesus and all of a sudden thinks, wait a minute. If he's not concerned about this, why am I? Curl up next to him in the pillow. Go to sleep. Peter's taking a long time. John, he must be arguing with Jesus. You go. You tell Jesus. And, they send, and one after another, they keep sending disciples and one after another, disciples don't come back. Until the last one comes and sees all of them sleeping and he has the revelation. If none of them are concerned with it, why would I? And he curled up next to Jesus and then pretty soon, there's 14 guys in a boat. Sleeping. Still doing exactly what God called them to do. And still ending up exactly where God called them to end up. And not having to answer the question, why do you still have no faith? Come on, sometimes our thoughts aren't His thoughts. But that's not to shame you. That's to point out there's a better way of thinking. And if you'll abandon the way that you think, you can have the way that I think. If you'll abandon the way that you live, you can exchange it for the way that I live. That's the offer. Take that sandy, nasty peanut butter and jelly and throw it in the trash because I've got sandwiches that are so much better. That's not a taunt so that when you come to me with no sandwich, I say, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm not giving you mine. That's an invitation into something so much better than we ever knew existed. It's an invitation into thinking and living like He thinks and like He lives. Jesus is so committed to this that He said, everything that is the Father's is now mine. And the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will take what is mine and make it known and reveal it to you. Everything. You know the only thing that Jesus can't tell you is the only thing that Jesus didn't know. That's the day the Father's returning. Other than that, everything that, has, that is the Father's has been made known to Him. And everything that is His, He said the Holy Spirit will come. Now how does He come? By us seeking Him. Because He said He is rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He doesn't say just go to sleep if He's called you to be awake. Be awake. You notice He didn't tell the disciples it was cute for them to sleep when He told them to pray. Don't take this message and make it, all right, I'm just going to go to sleep and I'll end up where I'm supposed to be. No, it, <laughs> make sure that Jesus didn't tell you to be awake praying. Otherwise, He might come and wake you up and say, couldn't you even stay awake for an hour? That's why hearing His voice and knowing what He's calling us to is so important because in one situation, He's telling them, why are you waking me up? And in another one, He's saying, why are you sleeping? What's the difference? What He called them to. He said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He told those guys to pray. But you can't pray while you're sleeping and you can't get to the other side if you die. So knowing which one is which is pretty important. 
That's why we need to hear his voice. That's why he said, my sheep hear my voice and know my voice. And the voice of a stranger, they won't follow. Meaning what? The stranger's speaking. You're just not going to follow it if you hear and know his voice. Oh God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that, that you're alive, that you have something so much better than anything we've ever imagined, God. Than anything that we, God, that anything we haven't received from you, there's something better. That your ways and your truth, your thoughts are so much higher. God, that they're higher than the heavens are from the earth. And you told us to abandon wicked and foolish thinking. To abandon unrighteousness. You realize that He called you the righteousness of God in Christ? So if He says the unrighteous man should abandon his ways, well, if you are not an unrighteous man, then, then guess what? Your ways don't need to be abandoned. Why? Because when you've been born again and you're following Him, you're walking in the righteousness of God as long as I'm following Him. There's nothing left for me to abandon. It's when I allow myself to start thinking things that I can't find in Him that I need to renew my mind. So God, I just thank you for that. I thank you that you've given us this great invitation, God, that this exchange of unrighteousness and wickedness, that Jesus, you came and you made a way, that you were the first exchange, that you who knew no sin became sin so that we, so that I might become the righteousness of God in you. And now that, oppor- that opportunity, and that, that exchange is extended to everybody. I just pray, God, that we would, we would abandon anything that doesn't come from you. And grab hold of what you have because your ways are so much better and so much higher. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.